Hey, this is Leo, and welcome to After Hour Projects, a podcast showing how people have been able to use their own time to get to where they want to go, focusing on the process of creation, turning an idea into reality. Join me in diving into the stories of the guests on this podcast, how they have done their After Hour Projects. My guest today is Ken Huynh. Ken has worked at the intersection of technology strategy and fintech as, amongst many areas he is involved in, an investing partner at ArcFund, an angel investor network. He's also a former startup founder, having founded Saucy Sauce, building off of a family recipe, and has a background in research and management consulting. He now leads up a software development agency called Trinovation Services and does executive and career coaching on the side. We talked about the importance of purposely building and curating a support network when working on an after-hours project, the importance of assessing a market before entering it, and discussing the evolution of the New York City tech and venture capital scene over the years. Finally, we go into Ken's advice for those looking to create something of their own with his three-step model. This was a great way to kick off the podcast. Here's Ken Huynh. Hey again, it's great to have you here. And it's also just really great how like things turned out because the way we met was I actually heard about you first through a podcast called Badass Asian Dudes and felt that there was that connection having us both gone to the same business school, me for undergrad, you for MBA. And now we're here and now you're doing this podcast. So really great to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Leo. I'm happy to be on the After Hours Projects podcast. Very excited. Really curious to hear more about just what you've done and how you're able to balance that with work. And so just starting off, your background is really in a mix of technology, strategy, product management, and innovation. Curious to hear more about how your career has led to this intersection. One thing that I've kind of noticed about my career, and by no means has it been very linear, is that I've always kind of been a person that, A, has gotten a lot of enjoyment and satisfaction out of I should say pattern recognition and noticing trends and looking at the bigger picture of things. I started actually my career sort of in an academic setting. I worked at the technology think tank for several years called the Research Board, uh, which did custom research for CIOs of Globe 200 companies. And I interviewed a lot of very interesting, impactful individuals. So I actually was lucky enough to sit across uh, from Bill Gates and do an interview then, and Nanda Nilakani, who found Infosys, and uh, Halsey Minor. Um, as well as Ben Horowitz before he started Andreessen uh, uh, Horowitz. When I kind of began that part of my career and focusing on technology, I realized that I'm actually not just someone who likes observing and writing and theorizing, but I also like building, right? So my career has spanned over a decade at this point, focusing on technology strategy and consulting capacity. I worked at a startup that was about 100 people when I joined and ended up being about 10,000 by the time I left and exited for $1.2 billion uh, when I led some uh, a professional service division there. And in my last couple years, I've focused a little more on sort of product um, by accident, so to speak, uh, having founded a food startup myself that got venture funded and also working in innovation. So taking an idea from uh, essentially ideation to launch. Uh, so I'm working in various capacities there. Um, so I've been pretty involved over the last couple of years, really around the startup ecosystem. Um, and actually, I work with a company called a group called Arc Fund, 
which uh, is an angel investment collective where I help the due diligence team assess investment opportunities. I think a long story short, the arc is essentially uh, from an academic point of view to a more practitioner and execution point of view. That's kind of that's kind of the trajectory I've been on, and we'll see where the next ten years hold for me. But that's kind of where I've come from. Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense in terms of first, like building up that knowledge, just starting out doing a lot of the analysis skills, and then being able to apply that, and then doing that in terms of a growing company, and then also being able to use those skills then to start something of your own. So I can see how there was that, and so then just going more into. What you've done in addition to your professional career, more of what you've done while working. You've also founded Saucy Sauce, a condiment company, and serve as an investing partner of an angel investor network and gotten an MBA, doing all these while working full time. Before we go into each of these, are there any common threads in these experiences? Yeah, I think、uh, one interesting thing is that when you're able to take a step back and Understand the broader system. You also can kind of take an objective point of view and kind of see why certain ideas become big or real. What conditions and sort of situations are ideal for them, and then you can kind of start like combining your ability to recognize them, and then、uh, the skills you you gain over time, and actually decide. Where you want to allocate your time and resources, I think where that kind of comes into play with after-hour projects is that Saucy Sauce was a hobby business. It started because my sister and I were like,、uh, we should bottle my, my mom's、uh, Vietnamese dressings and marinade, uh, marinades. This was a combination of really good timing because it was the renaissance of the artisan food movement. We sold at Smorgasburg, and you know we were at the decal market. And we the, the company essentially scaled from essentially zero. To doing over two hundred thousand dollars in sales、uh, by the second year, and we were actually a pretty we had a pretty global customer base. You know, Saucy Sauce was an element of good timing. I actually quit my job for nine months, but what precipitated that was that first I saw that what we had been kind of learning and like what we built and what we learned over the short period of time that we decided to start a condiment company. It was just a combination of the ability to kind of Reach out to the right people, understand their experiences, like the learning process, so to speak. That's actually the key part. It's not about having all the knowledge beforehand before going for it. You might hear this from other people too. I think Gary Vaynerchuk's kind of like a guy that says,、uh, "Forgive my my French, but fuck it, just do it." Right? That that may be true to a certain extent, but at the same time, you kind of have to come in with your eyes wide open. Because you will have limitations, so then there's other aspects that you need to understand to where your weaknesses are, where you might need、um, assistance or a good team or good connections or good mentors. That's that that's a that's a really realistic point of view to take. So it's it's not necessarily about fuck it, go do it. It's about being cognizant about where and when you need to fill the gaps, the soft spots, but being confident in your ability to. Make it happen. That was saucy sauce specifically, but、um, yeah, that was an after-hours project that really that really had some traction, and you know we were lucky enough to get、uh, some venture funding and and put it through an accelerator called SOSV, which is called the Foodex actually nowadays. There's like that mix of preparation plus opportunity, and I can see how you describe that in terms of like when the conditions were evolving like to that point, 
but then also how there's a lot about learning on the job, that there's some things that you don't know, but then there's also things that you can leverage. Going off of that, uh, in terms of where you were at your professional career then, what were some things that you were able to apply to founding Saucy Sauce? So what's interesting is that I spent most of my early career uh, as, a, as a technologist. Um, I had spent several years, as I mentioned, at the RB, the research board, and then I had worked in consulting at PwC, and then I worked in another consulting company. And at the point I started Saucy Sauce with my sister, I'd already spent about two, three years with Berkshire Stream, which is the company that uh, eventually got acquired. As you can imagine, my responsibilities were kind of growing at, uh, at a clip at the time. Uh, but I did what, I, what was actually maybe key was that I worked in a remote teams. What that allowed me to do was multi-thread my focus. And I already built a bit of a network around me um, through friends and family, mm-hmm. uh, folks that had some context to provide. Uh, not, so, not necessarily a food startup context, but there was just this confluence of all this activity happening in the city. There was a greater acceptance for new food products on the shelves by retailers and sugars. I think timing has a lot to do with it. The conditions around you have a lot to do with it. But ultimately, it comes down to it's just kind of the awareness to say, okay, like I understand this is where the, the, the tailwinds are taking us. What do I got to do to get get it done, mm-hmm. right? What do I need, need to do to be to, to be out there? Um, and so hustle and grind doesn't doesn't necessarily just get you there. Uh, I think that's a bit of a fallacy in a way, because you can hustle and grind yourself to death, and eventually lose your your spirit and your energy and your passion. Uh, it, it, you have to work smart. That's ultimately the big takeaway I had from that period of time. It, it's really just about being able to like make that commitment. But like, it's also something that's educated, not just going in blindly. And then also evaluating like what the options are and then the fit with what you think you can do. And then there is that uncertainty, uh, like Precisely. in terms of like working on any sort of thing of your own, but then just being able to embrace that with the hustle and keep going. Uh, but also like, as you mentioned, just not doing something that's, hustling like for the sake of that yeah i 100 agree i also think having having trusted team members around you help a great deal i started saucy sauce with my sister and you always kind of hear the stories about like siblings like getting along and stuff like that um to be sure like we had a lot of like comfort with each other so to speak <laughs> we were much more casual about communications as you can imagine but i know that implicitly she had my back and we complement each other's skills i think that's something i'm i'm actually working with now as i embark on my new venture i'm spotting this more and more it's about that if you decide to assemble a team it can't be somebody you just you think their skills complement yours and that's it it takes a little time to develop a rapport and understand working styles so i think that was another key for me too um mm-hmm. now i i know your audience may, may be doing things solo as well uh in which case you know more power to you um, but i found that um to do something meaningful and impactful, which has always been something I put as a mission in my life, to do something big and impactful. In order to, e- to even shoot for the moon, you have to be surrounded by the right people. You have to be working with the right people. Uh, and that's important. Definitely. That's really what helps you bring that thing to the next level, the complementary of skills. But then being able to just support each other for when there are those challenges and being able to get through 
And that's where that working dynamic comes into play. I find that to be really interesting and really good insight too. And because it's also with people who are working on things even by themselves, it's like that support network that they have, the people that they can turn to, whether it be for advice or helping them out in terms of those different aspects. A lot of it is just being able to collaborate with people and then being able to get through things together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mentioning more about uh, just wrapping up with Saucy Sauce, what was the outcome? Yeah, um, so one of the big lessons um, that came out of that was that timing can work for you, but also work against you. The second big lesson is you have to pick the market you you, you decide to attack. I'll explain what both of those mean separately. Let's actually approach the second one first. While you have market opportunity, timing and the confluence of conditions can help you a great deal. You also have to understand if you're going to, if you're trying to build a moonshot, if you're trying to create a moonshot type of company, or even if you're trying to hit a double or a single, it's important to understand what the, uh, who has the monopolistic power, right? Uh, or if there is an, even a monopolistic power in the market you're deciding to, to, to uh, you know, make your, make your business in. I'll give you an example on food specifically. Food has two uh, tiers of rent uh, extracting um, levels. One is the retailer, which has which owns the customer. They tell, they determine where products get stuck, put on the shelves. It's a place where people shop mm-hmm. physically. It's tactile, and they the behavior shopping behavior is well defined. Now, e-commerce actually has a lot uh, has, has increasingly taken a share from that, driven mostly by Amazon and perhaps um, Shopify. But um, the, fundamentally, though, <clears throat> the if you're trying to get a product on uh, out to customers, you need to work with a retailer. These are rent extracting um, right. players. The other is the distributor. Distributors are embedded uh, entities. And what they they have long-standing relationships with the retailers, and usually usually have agreements with them in terms of discounts, promotions, things like that. So, in a market that has two incumbent layers that extract rents without adding much value, well, arguably, it is you you've got two tiers of of challenge that you must break through if you're founding a company and want to get big. So yes, we had a confluence of events where customer tastes were opening up in a different way. Exploration and discovery of new cuisines was at a renaissance. You also had a renaissance in terms of types of food companies that were merging, uh, really opening up the palate. But at the same time, you had an infrastructure that had an incredible level of incumbency. So that is not a good business to be going to 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 go for the moonshot unless you work outside of the system and this is why a company like amazon has you know mm-hmm. the type of market value that it has or a company like shopify has the market value it has it has decided to go around that incumbent ecosystem and compete alongside it while owning the entire value chain what i'm trying to say is if you're and this may this applies not just to after hour projects that can one day be full-time projects but applies to any kind of founder if you're going to build a business if you're going to uh, create a startup try and understand who you're trying to unseat 
who you're trying to go around. Who, what are your substitutes? And this is definitely a case where founding Saucy Sauce was not just uh, enjoyable and, and I'm so proud of uh, the team that we had and everything when we were you know, going full steam ahead back in 2015, 2016. But it was, it was also a lesson, right? A lesson about before you even decide to start a business. It's not just about the idea. It's about going to, again, eyes wide open, being educated. What are you trying to accomplish? What can be your outcome? So that was a big lesson learned. Yeah, these are really great takeaways and actually a really good transition into the topic of venture capital in terms of how do we look at companies, evaluate them. And then those are really some great points in terms of evaluating these companies' business models to engage whether they'll be successful or not. But just before transitioning to that part, the one point I thought was really interesting was how even now with direct-to-consumer companies, sometimes they are circumventing those retailers, but there's also a phrase currently going on now called CAC, which is customer acquisition cost, is the new rent. So how even these companies, uh, one example being like Casper with their IPO, it's the matter of how are they able to get these customers because advertising on Facebook or via Google these costs have gone up and with many different companies going into it, then it's a question of how they're able to do it. The interesting thing with this model now is that just speaking of retail in general, some of these companies that started out online are actually establishing physical storefronts to let people try the product out as a way of actually another way of getting customers. So it's kind of flipping back into going to pay rent. So setting up those retail storefronts. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and to that point also, um, this is why Facebook and Google and Amazon, they they were so prescient because they are now the rent-seeking incumbents. They are now the ones who have access to the customer. They own that. Yeah, you know, now you see Casper and Warby Parker trying to open up storefronts because it is a more efficient way, technically, well, arguably, um, to go right to the customer own them i don't know where that plays out but it is um ultimately what it comes down to in principle is how do you get what's the fastest path to getting your customer <laughs> and 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 engaging with them and knowing them right kyc yeah one of those finance terms right there so going into the topic of venture capital so many former founders eventually become investors in other companies and a lot of it is from having seen the creation of a company, going through the growth of it. How did you get started in the world of venture capital? You know, it's interesting. Um, there, Especially around that time that I emerged in this scene in New York City, um, there is a cult of founder worship that kind of existed, for good or for bad. At the same time, you have, this is about the time that entrepreneurship actually became kind of sexy. Before, it was really not. You were just kind of, you were, if you were an entrepreneur, you were kind of living outside the bounds of um, normal corporate society. Mm -hmm. And so it was a big risk. <clears throat> so um, how, how I ended up actually on the other side of the coin, most angels actually are former entrepreneurs. And, and I would argue the best venture capitalists are former founders. Uh, now, this, this can be, this is just anecdotal. But if you actually look at the biggest venture capital firms from Silicon Valley and even 
here in New York City, let's just consider Union Square Ventures, Fred Wilson, or Ben, ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z. Um, you go down that, just, just down the list, these guys all had hyperscale companies and they've been in the trenches, right? So it was like Loud Cloud with the, for Ben Horowitz and it was uh, Netscape for Mark Andreessen. Uh, you have a perspective as a founder that is unique, that only having been through the trenches and suffered the pain, would you, uh, would you be able to be in a position necessarily to you know, advise a, uh, a, a, a founder who's going through a very difficult situation or making very tough like decisions or trade-offs? I'm not saying that a venture capitalist who's never been a founder can necessarily get, wouldn't be the best person to advise. But it just it's a, diff- it's a different perspective. So uh, that's kind of where I got invited to join ARC. First, as um, there was a group called Food Angels that actually started as a, a spinoff of, of, of ARC Fund. And then after that, I was invited to join ARC Fund. <clears throat> so and just for a little background, ARC is a collective of angel investors uh, built in the same model as a limited partnership that a venture capital firm would have. Essentially, you have a bunch of LPs. The difference is that 150 or so accredited angel investors pull together their capital to get access to deal flow, to network with each other um, at events. And many of, the, many of them are also principals at, other, at their own venture capital firms, whether they are for, uh, funded by family offices or a, broad, a larger fund that, um, that would have uh, limited partners uh, that are not family offices. How I got involved with ARC and the angel investment networks in this in New York in particular mm-hmm. is kind of through that. Um, and also, like, for sure, you know, Saucy Sauce, as much as, it, as, much as, I, as I kind of poo-poo it now and maybe even back then, was kind of like considered a, a pretty hot brand during the time. And so if you were investing in food, you, you knew about us. So it was one of those things where uh, you were known, and so therefore, therefore, uh, it was an invitation because uh, you've already kind of shown that you've made your bones in a way. Yeah, that's a really insightful description of how this one investor network worked. And just going back to what you mentioned about founders, so I've also read the book "The Hard Thing" with "Hard Things" by Ben Horowitz, and what he talks about in terms of different things like managing a team, leading a team during times when things are bad. Like I think a lot of that is really empathy in terms of how a company grows from something that's small to something that he took public and also just had that and being able to see these things that aren't things that you can see from sitting back and doing analysis. Those really do add that dimension into founders being VCs. Definitely. And one thing I would add to that, Leo, is um, he makes a distinction between a peacetime CEO and a wartime CEO, which I think is actually very prescient as well. Because fundamentally, a founder is a wartime CEO. A wartime CEO has to make hard decisions based on trade-offs and opportunity costs. So it's not about business as usual. It's about dealing with scarce resources, scarce human capital, and not a lot of time. Time is running against you in many ways. A wartime CEO and a founder, I think fundamentally are kind of the same until at which point 
I mean, let's just say you reach a steady state, whatever that is, or you're acquired. Uh, there's an event that changes conditions. If you're no longer in growth mode or defending defend mode or attack mode, you're not. Uh, you're no longer a wartime CEO. So I think it's really important to understand because that's a that's a distinction. You you, it's a different mindset. But I think it's very important to understand kind of why a VC might look for that a little bit. No, I I think those two words, the peacetime wartime CEO, really capture it in perspective. People know those connotations, so being able to use that comparison, and just in general, not to say that like people who are really good at analysis can't make good investments. It's just that it's a different skill set and different way to look at things in terms of how to make investments and looking at the future of different companies. I don't disagree with you. I think it's a different skill set, and that each perspective adds a different kind of way. Uh, each, each each perspective has a different element of contribution just looking at the like whole tech scene in new york city given that you've seen a lot of that evolution going from what you described as when it wasn't that sexy to be an entrepreneur to now where there's different areas like the fire district that's known as the silicon alley of new york city and how there is that expansion though not as prevalent as in san francisco how have you experienced that change (laughs) Good question. When I when I first graduated from college, actually my junior year internship was in Silicon Alley. I worked for a company called Hot Response. This is back in 2001, just before uh, 9-11 actually. And Hot Response was uh, a venture funded uh, event, I should say mapping company, so to speak. I guess fundamentally what they did was they created virtual maps for conferences. And you could look at the virtual map ahead of time and find out where you wanted to go, who you wanted to talk to, and things like that. That was uh, Web 1.0, if you will. Uh, so none of the, this is before responsive web and things like that, and JavaScript, HTML5, things like that. So as you can imagine, it's pretty clunky. But nevertheless, uh, I back then, I don't think it was that. I mean, it was, I guess there was a renaissance at that period, right until 2001 where it was cool to be an entrepreneur or work for a startup. But right after that, you know, you worked for a startup, you were, uh, you, you, you were looking for a new job right after that, right? So it was not sexy. It was not cool. I mean, there were still companies in Silicon Alley, but it was just, there was a lot less fervor around it. Financial services were cool again for a little while. So I guess to your point, um, it's gone through its ups and downs, and I don't know what it was like before 2000. I, don't, I would venture to guess a lot less sexy than 2099. I think for like at this point, given the advent of Amazon Web Services and all these other kind of things that allow us to start companies much faster, technology companies much faster, um, and product companies to, to, to some extent, it's we are ju- just definitely in a very different age. I think this. It's the cost, the marginal cost to start a company now is so much lower than it's ever been. It's incredible. There's not a lot of friction or barriers to entry anymore. All you need is a good idea, some commitment, and and just time. And it's just, it's different now. Um, the question is, in my mind, is that, you know, with all this noise, is what, what calls the herd, right? How do you emerge from the herd? 
I heard uh, Scott Galloway this morning, who's a professor at NYU Stern, our alma mater. And he was saying the one good thing about this economic coronavirus economic impact is that it calls the herd in a very Darwinian fashion. And we will see what companies emerge from the stronger and we'll see what qualities they have because they're, they're, it's clear that there was either there, there was, you know, irrational exuberance in some ways, uh, maybe less systematic than it was or different systematic in a different way for 2008, but there definitely was irrational exuberance. So I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing. There was actually an article that came out just today. I think I read talking about Microsoft making an acquisition. And so I didn't really read into what that company was, but that's really to the point about companies with strong fundamentals, Microsoft having a strong balance sheet, being able to act in these times. Definitely. That was a firm networks, actually, a 5G um, company. Okay. Yeah. And really investing in the future infrastructure to then like let mobile devices and have that further connectivity. 100%. Yeah. Just bringing up Scott Galloway with, with Stern. So you went to Stern for your MBA and you were doing this when you were working. So how were you able to balance that? And what was that experience like overall? Yeah. So I was actually making some trade-offs. I actually applied to a few different programs, full-time and executive. Now I'm a little bit later in the career than some, some of your audience might be, or even some of our peers. Um, so for me, what I was looking for was a community I could plug into. So I actually got into uh, a few other schools that were a little further away in Chicago and, and, and Boston. But one school, well, NYU stood out to me because it was local and local enough for me to take full advantage of the ecosystem within the school. I ended up actually going with the executive MBA program which felt very much like a full-time program. Now, actually, I've never been in a full-time program, so I wouldn't be able to fully um, do a comparison. But there was a level of intensity there that I thought was um, unique um, in some areas. Some areas are a little, a little more relaxed. But one thing I did, did, um, found, I did find out and discover during the process of going over the program, just like anything, is that it's ultimately... It's not the material that counts necessarily, because you can take corporate finance just about anywhere. You can take the fundamentals of marketing just about anywhere and get the same material. It's exactly the same. <laughs> so if you need to learn it, go do it on Coursera or something like that, or Udemy. I don't know. Yeah. But the truth is, is that actually it's about the people you're surrounded with, the access it gives you to other people like you. I found that incredibly, yeah, I, 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 it wasn't a new discovery. But I found that the more time I put into building the community, the more I got out of the program. I ended up actually meeting quite a few people that really influenced me uh, to this day. And they were close friends of mine, <clears throat> not just from the program, but tangential to the program, just through networking events and going to reunions and things like that. These were people I wasn't connected to. They're loose connections. So I think uh, the decision to go to Stern was mainly about lo like location and also the reputation of the school being sort of a center of finance. But uh, yeah, I think it, it was just just a really, for me, the trade-off was definitely worth it, being so close to the school. I live in Brooklyn, so it's a short subway ride. I also went to NYU Stern for undergrad, and I can see how, for you, you were able to really kind of like magnify that too, because you've been in New York uh, like when you were working. 
So being able to like build on top of that existing network with that ecosystem of the MBA, I can see how that plays out. Yeah, it was highly complimentary for me. Got it. What tips do you have in terms of how to start something of your own? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's highly contextual, but maybe we can walk through a case, right? Let's just assume most of your audience are nine-to-fivers or corporate workers of some sort, information workers, highly skilled information workers who are looking for something beyond uh, leveraging their their skill set or their passions or looking for something beyond what they do on a day-to-day basis. Someone who has like an idea that they feel some strongly about, but might not know exactly what exact thing to do or what those exact steps are. Absolutely. And I was that person at one point. Um, what I would say is there's two steps to, to really, and, and I'm going to simplify it because it's not necessarily two steps. But first is actually the ideation, right? So it's a self-assessment, first of all. What are you passionate about? What do you think you have enough knowledge or you can gain enough knowledge in a short amount of time to do something about? And then the third thing in the ideation ideation portion would be, are you surrounded with the right people? And not necessarily even about like having a team, but I'm saying, do you have a support network? Do you have a network that you can reach into for loose connections that might be able to help you? Do you have a girlfriend that's supportive or a boyfriend that's supportive or a family that is supportive? The conditions matter a little bit. They can be overcome, but it's a self-assessment first. And then once you've decided on on an idea, you got to do your homework. We talked about earlier what it means about um, picking your, your market, right? So it's not just about timing. It's about the market you choose. Now, whether you are attacking, are you pl- whether you're intending to play into the ecosystem, disrupt it, or circumvent it, right? The, those strategies all determine the probability of it reaching some level of success, right? And then the other part is this. Once you get past the ideation point, you're in the process of setup. And setting yourself up for success could mean, you know, giving yourself the work, the, the conditions, the time after work to focus on it, right? Setting yourself up in that way. Setting yourself in the mind space, like getting that mind space there. Uh, being dedicated in the after hours. And then at that point, you know, in the execution, you know, you've thought about, you know, who you want to bring along for the ride, who can help contribute, you know, whether it's solo or not, you're still going to need that support system. Yeah. I think, I think it's, I think it's two things, right? It's, it's the, the ideation portion and the execution portion. They, they both have similar elements, but I think it's almost very important in the very beginning to be setting yourself up for success by thinking about all the things I just mentioned. Got it. That really makes a lot of sense. And it's also just that combination of, it's not just the founder themselves, but then also the people around them to then like help them get through everything and like navigate along that entire journey. Yeah, 100%. And I think one thing that's really interesting is that it's, uh, one thing I mentioned was loose connections. I think there's so many opportunities to connect with the people not from your own personal network nowadays. I mean, you and I, you mentioned we connected through BAD. There's other networks like, you know, ACN and 
Asian Hustle Network, which all seem full of vibrant, smart people. And then also through university. So NYU Stern has a lot of events happening all the time. Don't be lazy. Get out there. <laughs> that's that's a thing that I think may be missing a little bit too in some some situations. You can't expect things to come to you. You must make things happen for you. To what you said with that second point about going out there, what I heard recently was the phrase make calls versus take calls. And so obviously there is that balance to it, but taking calls is something like uh, when you're being, one's being responsive to an opportunity, but then making calls is actually putting oneself out there to go and reach out to people and then speak. And then when you do have that focus, then things actually align and then you just, you're able to see clearly further down that path. Yes. I think that's so smart making calls rather than taking calls. I think a lot of people kind of believe that they get what they deserve in some way. I don't, I, it's for lack of a better way to phrase it. I've, I've heard this sort of mentality quite a, quite a bit, not necessarily all the time, um, but it is certainly prevalent enough. And what I would say is, and I'll tell you my personal philosophy, and it's just kind of my personal thing, is that you need to plant seeds all the time. And, and that's kind of like a little, it kind of dovetails with your make calls, not take calls uh, philosophy. If you don't reach out and you don't advocate for your own behalf, no one will understand the value you bring into their, their life or their business or whatever it is, unless, they, unless they're aware of you. But the probability of them being aware of you is quite low because, let's face it, we live in an age of attention. So if we accept that people have limited attention, we must make every interaction that we have a valuable one. And so when you reach out to somebody, give value to get value. So make calls with value rather than take calls and take value. So again, anything else you want to share with the audience? No, I actually think this has been a, a very fun and interesting conversation. It kind of took me back a little while, a uh, little, little ways back to uh, some previous segments of my life. So uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for hosting this podcast, Leo. Thank you as well. It was a really great conversation. And where can the audience find you? Yeah, so I actually do uh, professional executive coaching on a personal basis on my website. Um, so you can reach out to me through www.kennethwin. That's Kenneth and then H-U-Y-N-H.com. And I'm happy to have conversations about just kind of taking, you know, if you're a founder, if you're thinking about your personal brand, or if you're thinking about public speaking and executive presence as a complete package, right? Because founders must do all those things well, must speak, must uh, articulate complex concepts and sell themselves. I think that's where I can add some value. So if you're interested in that, please reach out to me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of After Hour Projects. For show notes and more, visit www.afterhourprojects.com slash podcast. You can find all episodes there as well as on Spotify, Apple Music, or your preferred podcast service. Make sure to give the podcast a like, subscribe, and I'll see you on the next episode.